Mark Zuckerberg told The New Yorker the news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. So listen to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, the podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every day. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you get a rundown of what happened in the world of tech with all the headlines, context, commentaries, and tweets from all the biggest players. New episodes every day at 5 p.m. Eastern. Search your favorite podcast app for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Zenni offers thousands of affordable eyewear styles, starting at just $6.95. No ridiculous markups, no hassles, just quality, affordable eyewear delivered right to you. Visit Zenni today at zenni.com slash CNN. Good evening. In normal times, it would be strange to lead a newscast with the firing of a former reality TV contestant. But let's face it, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, you'd probably agree these are not exactly normal times. So we begin tonight with Omarosa Manigault Newman, fired three times from The Apprentice and once from the White House. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me four times, I don't even know who's to blame. Manigault Newman, who last we saw was whispering to Ross on Celebrity Big Brother, is now trying to sell a book and is waging a war of words of sort with her old boss, President Trump. She's releasing tapes of conversations made on the job, including one with the president. And she promises more recordings of phone calls, according to Politico, with first daughter Ivanka and son-in-law Jared Kushner. Manigault Newman once held a senior position at the White House Office of Public Liaison. She drew the highest salary possible for the West Wing and drew questions about what qualifications, if any, she actually had for the job. Well, now that she's back in the spotlight, Manigault Newman is being accused of poor judgment on the job and worse by the same people who hired her in the first place. She's being called a liar by many people, including by Michael Cohen, who is also at war with the president, who also recorded conversations with him. It's, of course, a cliche to point out that this all sounds like a reality show. But yes, this all sounds like a reality show, a show where public employees are told to sign non-disclosure agreements, which she just said she did not sign. A show where the boss is recorded talking about paying hush money to silence Playboy models and where he allegedly offers a deal to Manigault Newman to remain on friendly terms. It's a show where a presidential candidate could loudly and repeatedly promise to hire only the best people, only to ditch them and then call them liars and wacky and more. On Sunday on NBC's Meet the Press, Manigault Newman released this clip purportedly of her firing by Chief of Staff John Kelly in the White House Situation Room. We've got to talk to you about uh, leaving the White House. It's come to my attention uh, over the uh, last few months that there's been some pretty, in my opinion, significant integrity issues. I think it's important to understand that if we make this a friendly departure, um, we can all be, you know, you can look at look at your time here in in uh, the White House as a year of service to the nation, uh, and then you can go on without any type of. difficulty in the future relative to your reputation. Can we have I a, you ask you a couple of questions? Uh, Does the president, is the president aware of what's going uh, on? Don't, let's not go down the road. This is a non-negotiable discussion. Well, this morning also on NBC, Manigault Newman released another recording of a call purportedly with the president. Marosa, what's going on? I just saw on the news that you're thinking about leaving. What happened? General Kelly, General Kelly came to me and said that you guys wanted me to leave. No, I, I, nobody even told me about it. Nobody, wow. you know, they run a big operation, but I didn't know it. I didn't know that. God yeah. Damn it. I don't love you leaving at all. Well, the president either pretending he didn't know she was going to be fired or actually not knowing she was going to be fired, but not exactly stopping it either. That is what he said then. This is what he tweeted this morning. 
quote, Wacky Amorosa, who got fired three times on The Apprentice, now got fired for the last time. She never made it, never will. She begged me for a job, tears in her eyes. I said, okay, people in the White House hated her. She was vicious, but not smart. He continues, I would rarely see her, but heard really bad things, nasty to people, and would constantly miss meetings and work. When General Kelly came on board, he told me she was a loser and nothing but problems. I told him to try working it out, if possible, because she only said great things about me until she got fired. All right. Now, first things first, that is the president of the United States seeming to suggest that someone may have deserved firing in real life because she had been fired three times from a reality TV show, a TV show he continued to have her on. The president is also suggesting that despite being nasty and missing meetings and work and being informed by his chief of staff that she was nothing but problems, wanted her to remain because, quote, she only said great things about me. So given that, was the president just making it up when he said this about her during the campaign? And Amorosa, don't leave Amorosa. She's a wonderful woman. Don't leave. She's a wonderful woman. She has done so much for me with the African-American community, with communities generally. Uh, and she's another one. She is such a fine person, and nobody knows it. You are amazing, okay? And I just want to thank you very much for everything you've done. See, it sounds there like he's not just talking about a thrice-fired reality star who'll say nice things about him. No, it sounds more like he considers her a great hire, like all the other great people he either had had hired or was planning on hiring. We're going to make America great again. We're going to use our best people. I'm going to get the best people. We're going to deliver. We're going to get the best people in the world. We don't want people that are B-level, C-level, D-level. We have to get our absolute best. We're going to use our smartest and our best. We're not using political hacks anymore. It's a sophisticated chess match, but I have the best people lined up. You need people that are truly, truly capable. We have to get the best people. So was Amarosa Manigault Newman one of the best, or was she always, to use the president's words, a loser who just said nice things about him? Is she a lowlife, as the president says today, or a fine person, as he once said? We may never actually know, but if the president is right now, what does his hiring of Ms. Manigault Newman say about his own judgment and the kind of people he wants to surround himself with? We don't know what White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders used to think of Manigault Newman, but now that the president doesn't like her, she is clearly not a fan. Her statement reads, and I quote, The very idea a staff member would sneak a recording device into the White House Situation Room shows a blatant disregard for our national security, and then to brag about it on national television further proves the lack of character and integrity of this disgruntled former White House employee. And as I mentioned earlier, the president's former attorney and current alleged adversary, Michael Cohen, also decided to weigh in, tweeting, To the many dozens of journalists who called me questioning Omarosa's claim in her new book that POTUS, at real Donald Trump, took a note from me, put it in his mouth, and ate it, I saw no such thing, and I'm shocked anyone would take this seriously. Just for the record, he's saying he never saw the president eat a piece of paper. And the president of the United States retweeted that. And that is all just part of today's reality. More now on all this from CNN's Caitlin Collins, who joins us from the White House. How's the White House trying to explain what is going on here? Anderson, my, how the strategy has changed from a week ago when aides were encouraging the president not to tweet about Omarosa and give her book any oxygen. The president now tweeting multiple times about Omarosa today, naming her specifically, saying that when she was in the White House, she wasn't liked by her colleagues, that she regularly missed meetings and even skipped work, yet he kept her around because she praised him. Reminder, she is someone who made $180,000 of taxpayer-funded money. 
But Anderson, certainly these recordings from Omarosa that she has released over the weekend and today are creating a sense of paranoia in the West Wing. Staffers long suspected when Omarosa was on her way out that she was recording conversations she was having. But these recordings being published really give weight to those claims and even give weight that Omarosa was having conversations with the president and the chief of staff and other senior White House officials. And they are worried about what else could come out. I mean, is it clear what, if any, recourse the administration would have against Manigault Newman? I mean, the president says she already has signed a, a fully, she has a fully signed nondisclosure agreement, which she, I believe now, just recently, just moments ago, denied that she had signed. Um, do we know what the truth is here? Well, Anderson, the president seemed to be referencing those NDAs that they had White House staffers sign last year, which a lot of them saw as unenforceable, watered-down versions. But then Omarosa making clear she did not sign the White House version of the nondisclosure agreement. She could have signed one when she was on the Trump campaign or at the Trump organization. It's unclear exactly which NDA it was that she signed, but the president tweeting that there. But also Omarosa threatening that she does have more tapes to come, and she's waiting to see what the White House's reaction is going to be, because she does believe that they will retaliate against her. She didn't say how or what she was expecting, but she did say that and said that if they do, she could publish other tapes. Caitlin Collins, thanks very much. A lot to talk about. Joining us is David Gergen, Paris Denard, and Amanda Carpenter. Paris, I want to start with you because I remember when Omarosa left the White House, um, you had some really interesting things to say, and it always stuck in my mind. You, you first of all, just not, it doesn't really get to today's story, but it, to me it's just interesting. It sort of sets the stage. You were saying one of the criticisms of her was that rather than kind of reach out to people, she basically isolated potentially good people who could have come to the White House because she was concerned about her own power. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, it, but is my memory correct on that? Anderson, your memory is absolutely correct because that's the truth. Um, that is exactly what happened. Omarosa had this complex about being the number one person in charge uh, at the White House and being the assistant of the president, the highest ranking uh, black American at the White House. And there were several people uh, who wanted to work at the White House from day one. Uh, Kay Coles James, who's now the president of the Heritage Foundation, uh, was one such person who is on the record saying that Omarosa blocked her. And there were other people who came in and, and who wanted to come in, but Omarosa successfully blocked them uh, from coming to the White House. But luckily, um, even with her attempts, there were uh, black Americans there from day, on day one, and there are black Americans working there now in pretty, pretty important roles. But the fact of the matter is, Omarosa was concerned about her own ego, about her own status, and about her own image uh, in the Trump White House and across the country, masquerading as if she mm. was the black liaison person when she really wasn't. She could have had that title, but decided not to hire anybody to actually be the liaison to the black community like I was when I was the director of black outreach at the White House for the Bush administration. But instead, she became the director of communications in the Office of Public Liaison, an office, a, a, a position created just for her. But it was convenient when she didn't want to do black issues. She would say, oh, I have so many things on my plate because I'm dealing with all of the things that public liaison is doing. Mm -hmm. She did not want anybody else to be at the table. And that's unfortunate. So, David, what does it say? Uh, I mean, I think Paris's perce perception of this is really interesting. What does it say about the president and the kind of people he hired or you know, wanted to keep around the fact, I mean, anybody who I didn't even watch The Apprentice and I knew her reputation, the idea that anybody would be surprised at anything that is happening, you know, I, I just feel it, uh, it's hard to imagine that anyone, particularly the president or in the White House, would be surprised. 
Well, certainly Rance Priebus uh, must not be surprised. It's been widely reported that as the incoming chief of staff, he tried to block her from coming to the White House. Uh, the president insisted, and, and, and she came in on, on Trump's, uh, uh, you know, basically his order uh, to hire and put her in an important position. Uh, I do think Donald Trump has ample reason to be angry now at her because she has violated all the norms and rules uh, that go with being a White House staffer, and that is you are a member the staff you're not you're expected to keep you know uh, you can write a book later on but do it do so after a, a discretion a period of discretion and some distance and certainly you know carrying around a wire uh, violates every rule like I just can't imagine the last time I heard about wires in the White House was in the Nixon administration when the president himself ordered uh, that people uh, there be wiretaps on people uh, but this is a I, I think is a, a blow that goes well beyond Amoroso increasing it's also coming attention about race and race in the White House and Donald Trump's racial views. Uh, Amanda, how, how do you see this? Because, I mean, David said the president has a reason to be upset. Uh, again, I come back to how could he have not known who he was hiring? And even from the get-go, it seemed like plenty of people around him were saying, what are you doing? This is not a good idea. But she said good things about him, and so he wanted her to stay. Yeah, what I think, I think we're seeing something pretty serious here. And I think it's fun to laugh off because it's Amorosa and we know her from reality TV. But what we are watching in real time is someone attempting to blackmail the president that collected uh, tapes and evidence to use against him if anyone in the White House retaliates her, against her for writing this book. And so who else has blackmail? What was Michael Cohen doing when he was recording the president. Uh, Stormy Daniels and her lawyer, Michael Avenatti, say that they have a DVD uh, of some kind of evidence against the president. The National Enquirer negotiated a hush agreement on Trump's arguable behalf for Karen McDougal. So how many people have this type of blackmail against the president? It's a fair question. And what Omarosa is doing is not funny. Uh, I think people think it's fun to watch because they don't like President Trump. No, this is pretty serious. You're watching someone bully the president, and she's pretty much able to do it because he made the mistake of hiring her. Well, and, and Paris, I mean, it's not funny because, uh, you know, to the point that was made by Caitlin, she was paid, you know, very highly from American taxpayer dollars for a job, which, as you yourself were saying, she wasn't doing. No, absolutely. It, it's not funny. Uh, there, there's, I've, I've heard reports of people that are in this book, and, and, and there's claims of defamation of character. Um, she is making claims that are just absurd. And I think, just to the president's credit, the president hired her because, one, he, he likes people who are loyal, and he likes people who support him, and, and she was effective on the campaign trail talking about him and defending him uh, and, and to the black community and to all communities, talking about the fact that she did not believe he was a racist and all the things he was going to do for the black community and the things that he was going to do for urban America, things I believe and know that he is doing. But it's just interesting that when she worked for him on, on The Apprentice three times and The Ultimate Merger, which is another show that she did with him, and then for the campaign and the transition and then a year at the White House and then the day after she was fired, she never once said the man was racist. The day after she was fired, she said she resigned and said then he is not a racist. So this is a woman who knows him and knows him uh, not to be a racist, said as much, and now, conveniently, when she needs money, because her, her gravy train with the Trump team and family has run out, she's going to flip and say now he's a racist. D it's D unfortunate and it's pretty sad. David, you're shaking your head. Uh, I'd 
I, I just want to take issue on a couple of things. Look, I think she's a grifter. I have no use for her. I think she's done terrible things with all of that. But let's face it, you know, she's handing Donald Trump some of his own medicine. He's been, he was uh, recording people secretly in his offices long before he became president, made a habit of it, used the tapes uh, to his advantage. And now people are turning around and doing that. What happens in a presidency is that everybody takes their cues from the president. He sets the standards. If he starts behaving in certain ways, other people follow. What is, I think, particularly unfortunate about this whole incident is that this is a black woman who is involved here. And for many blacks in this country, what they have heard is yet another black person the president knows being called dumb. Uh, and when he turns on it, he, he went after LeBron, he went after Maxine Walters, he went after our Don Lemon, he's gone after her, you know, and, and black athletes are SOBs for taking a, taking a knee. And as, as, as one of your contributors, uh, Boykin, pointed out recently, you know, the blacks come from shithole countries. So there is a pattern here that I think is as disturbing as anything else uh, that's going on in this story. Uh, Paris, do, you, do you see that as part of this pattern? Uh, no, I don't. And I think it's insulting to the uh, men and women who are serving currently in the White House to think that they, this is this what happens at this White House. Omarosa did this. It is not. It is, it is dumb, quite frankly, to go how, into how the many, situation. How many blacks where, are in senior positions? Well, if you want to ha have how that, how many blacks are in senior? That you have Jonathan Hollyfield, who's the executive director of the White House Initiative on HBCUs. You have Jerron K. Smith, who's a commissioned officer in Ledge Affairs. You have Mary Elizabeth uh, Taylor, who's a commissioned officer in Ledge Affairs, who just got appointed by the president to be the assistant secretary these, of state for legislative affairs. These are all third-tier people. Um, How many people are in first-tier positions? There is no one that is at the assistant to the president level. However, the two persons that I named before exactly. are commissioned officers, which are uh, as you know very well, are in the senior level positions, as well as the fact that the executive director is Jonathan Hollyfield. And you have other people. The deputy director of the White House Fellows Program, Blanda David, is African-American. You have uh, the, the second lady of the United States. Her communications director is uh, Kara, uh, Kara Brooks, who's African-American. And then across the administration, in senior level positions in the agencies, you have many African-Americans serving in senior level positions. Okay. Amanda, Amanda, so the, that's the fact. Uh, Amanda, the notion that, that the president feigned ignorance and then displeasure when he talked to Manigault Newman on, on that recording again. I don't know how that recording was edited. I don't, we don't know what else was said. This, uh, you know, this is something that was released by, by her. Do you find that telling? Because, I mean, it is runs consistent with what Maggie Haberman in the past has talked about, how the president doesn't like direct uh, confrontation. And he either is feigning, oh, I didn't know she was, that you were going to be fired. I don't like the idea of you leaving. He's not saying, I, you know, I'm going to stop it or anything. Yeah, I, I think Trump often tries to play both sides of an issue. I don't know what he really knew at the time, but for all this talk of what Omarosa may have invented or not, there has been a productive piece of information that came out of this, and that's in the fact that Kellyanne Conway did confirm that West Wing staff are asked to sign non-disclosure agreements. Um, with that, Omarosa also has produced evidence that she was offered a $15,000 a month contract that she describes as hush money. And so I think this has far-reaching implications because if the Republican National Committee funds and or Trump campaign funds are used as hush money, 
Um, I think donors are going to be very curious about that. And let's not forget that Michael Cohen uh, was a deputy finance chair at the RNC. So he had a say in how that money was used. And so I think the RNC needs to be asked a lot of questions mm. about where their funds are going and why. Yeah, more on that in the coming days, no doubt. David Gergen, Paris Denard, Amanda Carpenter, thank you. President Trump treated him like public enemy number one. Now he's been fired. Coming up next, we'll talk about Special Agent Peter Strzok's real and alleged offenses, whether they warranted the professional death penalty and whether his punishment had anything to do with the president's displeasure. Later, the president's TV lawyer changes his tune on what the president said to James Comey and why the shifting storyline could matter a lot. We'll be right back. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Our friends at Zenni Optical offer a huge variety of high-quality, stylish frames and state-of-the-art optics starting at just $6.95. You can get multiple frames with this great pricing for less than one pair elsewhere. Start building your eyewear wardrobe from the comfort of your own home at Zenni.com. With the latest trends in eyewear, available in hundreds of frame styles and materials, there isn't a better way to change it up for every season. Plus, Zenni offers prescription sunglasses at incredible prices. Visit Zenny today at zenny.com slash CNN. That's Z-E-N-N-I slash CNN. When the FBI's Office of Professional Responsibility got done investigating Special Agent Peter Strzok, it recommended that he be demoted and suspended for 60 days. Today we learned he was fired. Strzok, as you know, was bounced from the Russia investigation last year in connection with a number of anti-Trump text messages he exchanged with his lover at the time. His actions became a focal point for criticism of the probe, some of which played out when Strzok testified before Congress, including this exchange over why Special Counsel Mueller took him off his team. My testimony, what you asked and what I responded to, was that he kicked me off because of my bias. I'm stating to you it is not my understanding that he kicked me off because of any bias, that it was done based on the appearance. If you want to represent what you said accurately, I'm happy to answer that question, but I don't appreciate what was originally said being changed. I don't give a damn what you appreciate, Agent Strzok. I don't appreciate having an FBI agent with an unprecedented level of animus working on two major investigations during 2016. Well, as you know, the president has been loudly calling for Strzok's departure. He's now gone. He tweeted today, deeply saddened by this decision. It's been an honor to serve my country and work with the fine men and women of the FBI. He also linked to a GoFundMe page. CNN's Manaraja joins us now with more. So the FBI had already punished him for, for the text. Do we know now why he was fired or why he was fired now? Well, there's actually no real clear answer from the FBI about this decision to fire Peter Strzok Anderson. The FBI's Office of Provisional Responsibility, which does deal with personnel matters, recommended that a 60-day suspension along with a demotion for all these anti-Trump texts. But the FBI's deputy director, David Bowditch, who's a Trump appointee, overruled that decision and fire struck on Friday. Now, this caused Strzok's attorney to say that this breaks from precedent and is, quote, deeply troubling to all Americans because the inspector general's investigation at the Justice Department did not find that Strzok's personal feelings ultimately impacted the decision to clear Hillary Clinton of any wrongdoing. Now, after silence for much of the day, the FBI did put out a statement tonight saying, quote, the deputy director, as a senior career FBI official, has a delegated authority to review and modify 
any disciplinary findings and or penalty as deemed necessary in the best interest of the FBI. So as you can see, Anderson, not many details about their thinking and all raising questions about whether or not this firing was prompted by pressure from the president and his relentless tweeting attacking Strzok and the FBI. All right, Manaraju, thanks. I want to bring in former FBI supervisory special agent Josh Campbell. He worked for James Comey, currently is a CNN law enforcement analyst. Also with us, the CNN chief political analyst, Gloria Borger. Josh, do you think he should have been fired? Well, I think it was a tough decision. And if you're the FBI director, you're trying to weigh, you know, two different things. There's uh, Peter Strzok's performance as an FBI you know, employee. He had a reputation of someone who was widely known as an excellent investigator, a counterintelligence expert. And then you have the issue of conduct. And if you're sitting in the shoes of Dave Bowditch, the deputy director, you have to look at that and ask yourself, does this type of conduct warrant a serious, uh, you know, uh, you know, metting out of punishment, which would include termination? In this case, he, he said that it did. I think that, you know, the audience wasn't necessarily the outside world, the American people, but it was internally. It was telling the rank and file that, you know, we expect you, the career FBI employees, to come to work every day and comport yourself in, you know, concert with our core values. How can I ask you to do that when I'm not holding our own senior leaders to those very same high standards? I doubt it was a very easy decision, but, you know, it was one that he determined he had to make. Gloria, you could also look at it as if he stayed in his job and interacted with the public in the future or on other investigations, would people raise automatically raise questions or be justified in raising questions about, well, what's his motivation on this next investigation? Yeah, I think that was probably part of their consideration, although the inspector general report said that they did not believe that his that his work at the outset uh, was biased. But, you know, I do believe that it would give uh, people uh, ammunition to use against the FBI, particularly the president of the United States, who doesn't seem to need any more than he already has. But in getting rid of uh, Peter Strzok, he can claim victory, just as he did when uh, the deputy director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, was fired. So the president can say, look, we've gotten we've gotten rid of these two bad apples, although there are plenty more. Josh, do you think the president's uh, attention on this had an impact? I don't. And it circles back to the person who made the decision. Now, I know Dave Baddage very well. I worked for him in the FBI in a number of different positions. You would be hard-pressed to find someone with greater integrity in the organization. And when I actually heard that it was him making the decision, that actually gave me comfort because I know him to be an honorable person. I think this is one of those instances where you have two things that can both be true at the same time. We have a president of the United States and his allies in Congress, Chairman Goodlatte, uh, Congressman Gowdy, who have politicized this issue with Peter Strzok in a disgraceful way, in a disgusting way, going after a career civil servant. That's happening on one hand. The other thing that I think is also true is that you have an FBI employee who engaged in wrongdoing. And, you know, I don't think that those officials inside the FBI who were making that decision were influenced by outside politics. I think they looked at a very tough decision and made a tough choice. Gloria, you know, in one of the president's tweets today about this, he said that the list of bad players in the FBI and DOJ gets longer and longer. Uh, If he still considers Strzok, you know, a bad player, he, he obviously does. Wouldn't the list then be getting shorter? (laughs) <laughs> well, you might think so, but there are, there are plenty of bad players. I mean, how, as far as the president's concerned, how about starting with the special counsel, uh, Robert Mueller? How about starting with his own attorney general, who he's been tweeting about? How about the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, whom he doesn't seem to like? How about all the lawyers who work for Bob Mueller, who, what does he call them, 13 angry Democrats, or maybe now the number's up to 17. So, you know, I think there are always going to be plenty of people that the president is going to feel aggrieved by, particularly uh, so long as they're involved in the Russia investigation, which he still, of course, 
considers a witch hunt and a hoax. Yeah, Gloria, thanks very much. Josh Campbell as well. If uh, President Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, is at it again tonight, saying that the president never had a conversation with fired FBI Director James Comey about limiting the investigation into former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. This despite Giuliani saying precisely that last month, an attempt at untangling it all is just ahead. Remember, to create an ad like this one, visit purewinning.com slash CNN. Another Keeping Him Honest report tonight, and another example of someone speaking for the president trying to gaslight the American public. It's certainly no secret that President Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, is no shrinking violent when it comes to putting his client's views about the Russia investigation on public display. So here he is about 36 hours ago telling our Jake Tapper on State of the Union that the president did not have a conversation with former FBI Director James Comey about limiting the investigation into his former National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn. There was no conversation about Michael Flynn. Uh, the president didn't find out that Comey believed there was until about, I think it was February when it supposedly took place. But, Mr. Mayor, you said you told ABC News last month that the president told Comey, quote, can you give him a break? Now you're saying that they never had. I never, I never told ABC that. That's crazy. I, mean, I never said that. Crazy. He never said that, he says. But here he is, July 8th, on ABC, saying that. How is he a good witness for the president if, if, if he's saying that the president was asking him, directing him, in his words, to let the Michael Flynn investigation go? He didn't direct him to do that. What he said to him was, can you, can you give Comey him a break? Says- so in case you missed that, because the crosstalk, Mr. Giuliani said, quote, what he said to him was, can you give him a break? Which is, of course, the exact thing he denied saying to Jake. Not to be deterred, Mr. Giuliani took another crack at it this morning. What he was saying is perfectly justifiable. He didn't say, you must, you have to, I'll fire you if you don't. He said, consider it. Number three, he never said. Lawyers argue like this, we call it arguing the alternative. So let's try to unpack all of that. I'm joined by Harvard Emeritus Professor Alan Dershowitz, author of the book, The Case Against Impeaching Trump, and CNN's chief legal analyst, Jeffrey Tubin, who once studied under Professor Dershowitz. Jeff, the idea that uh, Giuliani floated that this conversation never took place, is this some strategic shift or is this just a lawyer who can't keep his story straight? No, I, th- I think there's, there's method here. I mean, I, I think, you know, you need to look at what Giuliani is doing as a political strategy more than a legal strategy. And he's giving choices to what people want, can believe. They can believe that this conversation never took place. They can believe that if it took place, there was no crime committed there. And, and, and I think this is something that the president has been doing, which is basically throw everything up against the wall. And, you know, if you look at the polls, some of it seems to be working. Professor Dershowitz, is there a method there to, to Jeff's point? Because, I mean, he does, Giuliani did then, you know, in the morning show saying, well, actually, no, there was a conversation. It's just not how, how it was portrayed. Well, I think uh, Jeff is absolutely correct. This is a political tactic, and it, I'm not an expert in politics. It may or may not be working. From a legal point of view, it makes very little sense because uh, Mueller has a witness. And from his point of view, it's a credible witness that the conversation occurred. And it really doesn't matter from the point of view of filing a report or filing charges, whether there is a denial that the conversation occurred. I think for purposes of any legal analysis, you have to assume the conversation occurred. It may have occurred with this nuance or that nuance. And then the question becomes a legal question. Does the president have the authority to ask his director of the FBI 
to go easy or to lay off. And my answer to that right from the beginning has been, yes, he does that have that authority. It might be a political sin to do it and a violation of traditions of separation between the White House and the Justice Department. But going back to Thomas Jefferson and Franklin Delano Roosevelt and John Kennedy, presidents have directed their Justice Departments who to prosecute and who not to prosecute. Well, this is where I I disagree with Alan on the law, uh, that that I do think it is potentially an impeachable offense for a president to tell the director of the FBI, don't prosecute, investigate, bother someone who may yet implicate me. I think that's the very definition of a corrupt motive. But I do agree that this is a political process. And I think what Giuliani is doing is basically telling uh, the Republican base, you know, what Mueller is doing is wrong. You can pick your reason. Right. But, Professor Dershowitz, if Giuliani is adding more confusion about what actually happened, couldn't you also make the argument that, therefore, it becomes even more important for the president to actually speak to Mueller to clear up what actually happened? You're sounding like you're talking like a citizen of the United States, and that uh, makes a lot me. of sense. But <laughs> from the right, from the point of view of a lawyer for a person who is under investigation, confusion is a good thing, not a bad thing. And your client has no obligation to clarify. All he has is an obligation to make sure that he doesn't say anything that results in incriminating statements. Jeff, I want to ask you something that about that Giuliani also said yesterday that I didn't quite understand. He said that it would be easier for him if the president did ask Comey to give Flynn a break. That would be something he and Jay Sekulow could defend. Um, well, I mean, I think, to Alan's I think Alan's, Alan's making that point, that, that the president can, mm-hmm. can, can, do, can do for any, any purpose. And I just think that's dead wrong. I, I think if you look mm-hmm. at Watergate, if you, you know, the president did have the legal right to tell the FBI that the CIA wanted the uh, Watergate investigation stopped. That was done for a corrupt motive, mm-hmm. and it was seen properly as an impeachable offense. You know, just but because that the was president... a crime. That was a crime itself. Telling a subordinate to lie to the FBI is a crime. Everything no, that crime. Nixon was charged. Yes, it is. You can't tell somebody to commit a crime. You can't tell somebody it's not a crime to lie to, tell to the, the FBI. FBI. I... That's a crime. Of course, it is. It's not a crime in an to tell the FBI an untruth. In any investigation, that's 1001. I you know. cannot lie to a law enforcement official about a subject of the investigation if it's material. But Look, you... I also disagree that it's a good thing for uh, if, if he said that. It's much better from a criminal defense point of view. I'm not saying anything to advise the president. Obviously, I'm not his lawyer. But it's much better from a point of view of a defense to be able to say, look, I didn't do it, but if I did do it, it's legal, than to say, well, maybe I did it, but if I did do it, it's legal. It's much better to have alternative defenses, but right now we're hearing a confused alternative defense. We don't know whether the position of the White House is he said it or he didn't say it. We do know the position of the White House is if he said it, it's not a crime. I think that's correct. Nope. <laughs> well, we have we have you know, we have a fundamental disagreement about this. For, we've been disagreeing yeah. about this for months. If you have a corrupt motive to save your own skin, the fact that you have the legal right to fire the FBI director doesn't matter.
So you say, so you say that Bush was a criminal, that George H. W. Bush is a criminal, because that fits exactly into what you're saying. No, he had I mean, a corrupt motive to save not, his own skin, and he pardoned. That's not true. So that you're was saying on the he last committed day, a crime? No, I'm not saying that. What's you know, the you want to change the, the subject? It's a, it's a total because there was no more presidency to. Inv- there was the presidency was over. He wasn't worried about. But it doesn't criminal. matter if he committed a crime on day on the last he day. Did. He committed a crime on the last day. Remember that a president can be indicted and convicted after he leaves office. So he was trying to save his own skin. Mm. Yes, it would have been a crime under your theory. Well, but I think th- your theory this is a wonderful is trip wrong. down memory lane about to the George Herbert Walker Bush presidency. But I'd rather President talk about Donald Trump. President matters. Grasshopper, I think matters. he has much to yeah. learn. I do. I'm a master. Uh, Jeff Dubin, he is the Professor master. Dershowitz. Thanks so much. Thank you. Reference to Kung Fu, early 70s, ABC, three seasons, never mind. President Trump today signed a defense uh, spending bill named in honor of Arizona Senator John McCain, now seriously ill with brain cancer. The president might have used this as an opportunity to say something nice about the senator. I'll tell you what he actually said instead. I'm Andy Katz from March Madness 365, and on this edition of our show, I'll be joined by Syracuse's Tyus Battle. I've been just trying to improve all facets of my game, being able to be more offensive, throwing the ball different ways, shooting the ball, I think that's improved, and uh, just my playmaking ability as well. Subscribe to March Madness 365 now at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. President Trump signed a massive Pentagon budget bill today in a ceremony at Fort Drum, New York. Officially, it's called the John S. McCain National Defense Reauthorization Act, and as chief executives tend to do, the president thanked all manner of high-ranking officials for making the whole thing possible. Listen, though, to what he left out, starting with the name of the bill. The National Defense Authorization Act is the most significant investment in our military and our warfighters in modern history, and I am very proud to be a big, big part of it. I'd like to recognize Deputy Secretary of Defense Shanahan, who's with us. Please, Mr. Secretary. I want to thank General Dunford, General Milley, General Neller, Admiral Richardson, General Goldfein, General Engel, and Vice Admiral Ray. Thank you all for your leadership. We would not be here for today's signing ceremony without the dedicated efforts of the members of Congress who worked so hard to pass the National Defense Authorization Act. Well, missing from that list, of course, is the president mentioning the very person who the bill is named for, Senator John McCain, former POW war hero, the John McCain battling brain cancer. Here's a look at the front page of the actual legislation. There is Senator McCain's name, which is pretty far down in the small print. After that signing ceremony where the president didn't mention McCain, President Trump headed for another political rally. This one on behalf of a Republican New York congresswoman didn't say Senator McCain's name at the rally. He also didn't miss the chance to take a dig at Senator McCain, referencing McCain's no vote on the health care bill. One of our wonderful senators said thumbs down at two o'clock in the morning. Well, joining me now is former Trump campaign aide Michael Caputo and CNN's political analyst Kirsten Powers. Good to have you both on. Um, Kirsten, I mean, the fact the president didn't say uh, McCain's name, although he had multiple opportunities, the name being on the bill, does it say something to you? Yeah, I, I mean, it, I think it shows that he cannot rise above his petty differences with 
John McCain, who, as we all know, is dying. And this is somebody who is, you know, at the end of his life, uh, a very storied career, uh, and including in the Republican Party, very important person to the Republican Party, which is why this is named after him. It's something um, that he worked on. And so to not give him credit and not to be able to acknowledge that, uh, I think it, it just looks extremely petty and small. Uh, you, you have somebody who um, deserves some recognition, especially at the end of his life. Michael, should the president have, have thanked McCain? I don't know. This is, uh, you know, politics ain't beanbag. And uh, Senator McCain hasn't been good to the president. He's insulted the president over and over and over again. This is, you know, politics can get petty. And it's gotten really personal between these two men. And uh, I, I appreciate the fact that the president didn't name check him today. Uh, the NDAA is an important bill, and I know he put some work into it. I wish him and his family luck. But not everybody in the Republican, not everybody in the United States thinks uh, very highly of John McCain. I came across my, I mean, I came up with my dislike for John McCain long before the president ever ran for office. And, uh, you know, he's, he's not exactly nice to the people who he opposes, and he's been really nasty to the president of the United States. Kirsten, in one of the president's tweets today um, about uh, Amarosa uh, Manigal, he, he said that he tried to keep her on at the White House because she only said great things about him. It, it, it was. It's kind of a telling remark. I mean, he had John Kelly saying, <laughs> according to him, she's a loser. She doesn't do work. She's causing trouble. Uh, but he said, try to make it work because she says great things about him. Right. I think it says a lot. And I think in the context of this conversation, if I can just quickly talk about what Michael just said, I think this is one of the big problems now that you see in politics, which is Michael's basically saying, well, because he's a political enemy, then, you know, and he's said bad things about me, then even though he's dying and he's had, you know, a storied career, who cares? When it actually used to be that people who would go up against each other in the presidential races, they would actually even end up being friends sometimes, and at a bare minimum could show decency. So I think in the situation uh, with Omarosa, the fact that the president would just want somebody who's just saying positive things about him suggests somebody who has you know, maybe it's too closely identified with his ego. Is it a lack of de decency, Michael? Uh, you know, as you know, Almarosa was the communications director of the public liaison office, and her job was to say nice things about the president and, and, and uh, publicize his policies. So, I mean, if you're going to criticize him for talking about her doing her job, I don't know what to think about that. And also, by the way, you know, this incivility in politics isn't brand new to 2018. It was. It went on decades ago. It went on a century ago. America, the American Republic, is a is a spirit. Uh, it's a spirit of democracy. Right. That was yeah, my it's, point. It's not but unusual. Is, but this has always gone on. But people are able afterwards to be able to be decent to each other, especially when people are dying or even when they die. You will see when somebody dies in politics, even if it was somebody that you didn't agree with, you usually try to find something nice to say about them. There is a, this is an unusual way to behave for a president of the United States. No, it's not. I, yes, I, you it know, is. As I said before, the rivalries that lasted well beyond an election have gone on throughout the history of the American Republic. This is not an unusual one. But it's a recent one. It's right. a particularly visceral one. And I think a lot of us are disappointed that it's debilitated to this point. Michael, a lot of people pointed to, you know, Ronald Reagan and, and, and Tip O'Neill as, you know, competitors who obviously didn't see eye to eye on much, but who uh, were social and friendly with each other when all was said and done. Right. I, that's when I came to Washington, when you would see people nearly in fistfights on the House floor, on the Senate floor. Then you'd see them at the Monocle having drinks together. The stories of Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan drinking whiskey together 
They were great stories, but things have changed on Capitol Hill. The monocle, now people go to their opposite corners. It's not a very nice place, and just on Sunday we saw people itching for a fight, you know, wanting to hurt each other. Right now I think America's in a bad place, and this relationship <laughs> is just a small part of it. But is it the is president it? to blame for that? Or does he play a no, role I think in that? both sides are to blame for it. I think the president is giving tit for tat with McCain. It wasn't just a couple of weeks ago where McCain intimated that the president might have committed treason in, in Helsinki. This is a nasty back and forth, and I wish it wouldn't go on, but that's a fact of life. I, I just can't follow this. It's like it always happens. It never happens. It doesn't matter. I mean, you just keep changing everything around. It's like... You just got, That's not what I said. You got done. You're, 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 you're got, absolutely you mischaracterizing you what I said. When I you said are mischaracterizing people, what, what I said. What you just described in the monocle with Tip O'Neill and, and the president right. is exactly Those what I was just talking about. Those were sanguine times. Right, right, and there were times before point. that that weren't like that. And there <laughs> That's were times what I'm saying. Where, I'm telling okay, you, it's I, cyclical, and there are times when cyclical, two people will never get along till the day they die. No, it's not. It, You're absolutely overestimating it. This is the way politics works. No, it, see, this is why I'm saying you're, you're saying this is the way politics works like it's always been that way. It hasn't always been that way. The way the president is behaving when a man is dying because he's criticized him, it's childish. And I it's, mean, it's, it it's is, really, it is This petty. is not the first time in history. It's not the first time in America. It's not even the first time in the last 10 years. All right. Let's just leave it there. Uh, Kirsten Powers, Michael Caputo, I appreciate it. Want to check in with Chris. He would, he's working on for Cuomo Primetime in about seven minutes. Chris? Newsmakers, baby. We got Kristen Davis on tonight. She's going to tell us what is it like to be in there with Mueller. What did he want to know about Roger Stone? What did she have to say? And then we have the attorney for Peter Strzok. Why are they surprised that he got fired? What they say was really good, what was really going on and what this is about. We're going to take both of those things on. We're going to have a great debate about what you were just talking about right there. And then I have a closing argument about how not all punches are equal. All right. I'll be watching seven minutes from now. Chris, thanks very much. Up next, white supremacists marching again. Michael Caputo was just talking about this in Washington, what they told our Randy Kay when we continue. Hey, it's Howard Beck, and I've got former NBA champion and current Yes analyst Richard Jefferson on Bleacher Report's The Full 48. For me, winning the championship just validated, you know, me from a standpoint of, like, all I ever wanted to do was win. All I ever wanted to do was win on a high, high level. And so to get that, then it just made everything feel like it was worth it. The Full 48 is now available on Spotify. And, of course, you can always listen and subscribe on the Bleacher Report app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, it was a year ago, and President Trump said, quote, there were very fine people on both sides when white supremacists and counter-protesters filled the streets of Charlottesville, Virginia. One of the white supremacists allegedly used his car to plow down and kill Heather Heyer, one of the counter-protesters. Yesterday, to mark the anniversary of their march, white supremacists gathered yet again, this time in Washington, for their so-called Unite the Right to rally. They were a smaller group this time, but their message of hate, of course, remains. Randy Kay was there. She talked with some of the marchers and discovered some of them feel emboldened by what the president said about them last year. Take a look. In the shadow of the White House, about two dozen white supremacists, led by organizer Jason Kessler, carrying an American flag. I would like President Trump, first of all, to know 
that there were good people on both sides. In a pre-rally tweet over the weekend, the president said he condemns all types of racism, but didn't specifically denounce the white supremacists or the neo-Nazis who would be attending. And that, as well as what the president has and hasn't said in the past, makes Kessler believe he has an advocate in the White House. Do you get the sense the president has your back? I hope he does, because there's a lot of people who who hate him and hate me and hate free speech. And I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I'm trying to stand up for my people. His people? White America. Despite him telling me that he's fighting for the civil rights of all Americans, there isn't any evidence to support that. Nor did he give us any examples of a time he has advocated for any other group. And Kessler's not alone in his thinking that white America may have an advocate in the Oval Office. I think he has the backing of the president in the fact that we want our white rights back, which we, which we have been stripped of. What rights he's referring to is anybody's guess, he wouldn't say. This 21-year-old from Texas had plenty to say. We are here to protect the rights of not just whites, but of all people. Okay, we understand who's in power. We understand who's trying to enslave us, who's trying to manipulate us and trying to trying to control us. And who is that? There are a lot of theories about who they are. Okay, uh, I do think that they have an agenda to end. Who is they? I am not going. I do not want to mention names. Do you feel like you have the president's backing and support? Uh, it's okay. So the president is a, a nationalist. He said it himself. We're nationalists as well. We're. So is that a yes? No. 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 Uh, different allegiance, I guess you can say. We're. We're. Our allegiance is to whites as a majority. Trump's allegiance is to all the people of America. Okay. He's not a bigot. He's not a racist. I don't know how you guys can spin that. You didn't hear me say that. You're the one who's saying that. This man in the group proudly wearing his Make America Great Again hat. Do you feel like Trump is a supporter of this group and and Jason Kessler? Yeah, yeah. I think he's, you know, I think he's like uh, just a pretty fair, intelligent man. We asked the White House for a response. Sarah Sanders told us via email, quote, The president has condemned all racism and said many times it has no place in our country, end quote. If ever white supremacists feel emboldened, it's now. Randy Kay, CNN, Washington. Well, quick reminder, uh, don't miss our daily interactive newscast on Facebook, where you pick up some of the stories that uh, we, you pick some of the stories we cover. It's called Full Circle. You can see it weeknights, every weekday night at 6.25 p.m. Eastern at facebook.com slash Anderson Cooper Full Circle. Just rolls off the tongue. It's a lot of fun, a lot of variety in the stories. Please join us again at 6.25 p.m. Eastern, every weekday night at facebook.com slash Anderson Cooper Full Circle. The news continues. I want to hand it over to Chris. Cuomo Primetime starts now. Chris? Are you ready to learn how to build a better consulting or professional services company? Then download the Liston.io show for the best sales and marketing advice so you can deliver your services to the people who need you the most. On the show, I'll be interviewing the smartest people in the industry to share what they know about building a better consulting business. I'll also give you episodes where I tell you specifically how to sell your services with confidence and how to transform into an influential leader in your industry. Your happy clients probably want to help you. It's too hard for them right now. You're asking them to do too much of the selling that you should be doing. Yeah, it's going to move. It's going to change. It's going to disrupt you at some point in time. Your most loyal clients are your most profitable. 
Ready to learn how other people are building the consulting company you've always wanted? Download the Liston.io show, spelled L-I-S-T-O-N dot I-O, wherever you get your podcasts. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we just launched the ability for anyone to advertise on CNN Podcasts. You're just a few clicks away from reaching millions of people in a way that you never have before. Advertise for a business event or kick off an awareness campaign for your brand. Start today at purewinning.com slash CNN. Integrating podcasts into your marketing mix has never been easier. Go to purewinning.com slash CNN to get started.